0: From and Career Coaching, it's How I Got Here, a show about business leaders, their resilience, and the stories behind their career moves. I'm Vincent Van, and I've interviewed thousands of job candidates over the years in both recruiting and as a former corporate executive. Now, I'm on a mission to help you take the next step in your career. A corporate job opening attracts an average of 250 resumes, and just one person is gonna get hired. It wasn't all that long ago that I was nervous and frustrated by my job search but it doesn't have to be this way. You can navigate your career with confidence, spend every day learning, and drive to better yourself. You can be excited about the future. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of meeting Alan Leung, who's a senior manager of technical recruiting at Quip, a Salesforce company. Alan, like many kids growing up, wanted to become a professional athlete, for him specifically a professional basketball player. After he graduated from UC Davis with a double major in economics and sociology, he spent a few years working in the retail industry. He realized that this wasn't for him and he pivoted into a career in technology. Fast forward eight years later, Alan's now leading a technical recruiting team and working with engineering and product executives on hiring initiatives and recruiting strategies his parent company, Salesforce, is known as being one of the largest and fastest growth software companies.
1: My parents, actually growing up, I never got to see them too often. They came over to, to America. They owned their own um, business uh, at a jewelry company. Um, over Now, Airbnb took it over. Uh, with Airbnb headquartered in San Francisco. Yeah, 888 Brandon Street. But they used to have uh, their own jewelry business uh, in the gift center is what they used to call it. Um, so there was a lot of like uh, opportunities there, um, and also to expand their clientele. That's why they needed to travel so often, and because of that, like I didn't get to see them sometimes for weeks and months. Um, mm-hmm. But because of that, I saw that they always work. They always worked around the clock, twenty-four-seven. Um, when they come home, you know, they'd be making all these orders for their customers uh, up until like the weekend when they have to travel. So I saw that Mm -hmm. the constant dedication, the constant drive, the constant like commitment to their business and ultimately like to their kids, right? Just because they are not here physically, they're trying to support us um, through Mm -hmm. different means.
0: Today's guest actually shares something in common with me. We both worked for Best Buy, the consumer electronics company that you might know as the leading consumer electronics retailer in the United States with store locations in Canada and other places around the world as well. But something interesting is that we both worked in a career in retail, which at least for me growing up as a son of an immigrant is not the industry that your parents encourage you to go into, which is retail, but we both have made a transition into the technology space. And I thought that that was so interesting to see how retail can be a springboard, a massive springboard into careers in other industries and at other different types of companies just because of what you learn throughout the
1: way. When I was a child, when I come home after playing hoops with like my friends, and in school, I would still work on my shots, like my three-point shots, my field goals, um, just anywhere, like layups. Um, and then my dad would come home and say, "No, why do you keep playing basketball so much? And I think I can make it into the NBA. And that was my dream was, like, just to keep on practicing and shooting and, you know, maintaining that accuracy. And then I realized that I, I don't think I can do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um So I find that a lot of Asian American parents, you know, they have this mentality where just working hard allows them to be able to provide for the family and really create opportunities for their children that, um, that they potentially didn't have themselves growing up. Do you see that to be true? Yeah,
1: I saw it firsthand. So I do agree with you,
0: you know, throughout your life in general, what makes you feel inspired? Like what gives you energy?
1: That's a good question. I think, um, motivating people, um, being like a store leader, right? At at Best Buy until now we're at the a team of seven. Uh, What really inspires me is like when they get it, like in that moment when you teach them something, it might be three, four or five times, right? Because they don't quite understand it. So you try different methods, methods and techniques and strategy to really hone in on the actual like message of what you're trying to deliver. And when they finally get it, and you see it right in their eyes and they're like actually practicing the execution of what you're teaching them. You're like, that's why I became a leader. That's why I became a manager or, or, you know, that's why I became a coach. So I think the constant like chase of someone trying or encouraging them and really having them be successful is what really inspires me and keeps me like going to work every day.
0: That was something that I didn't expect to get so much of out of, retail working in retail in general is really learning how to set expectations how to demonstrate skills Mm -hmm. how to teach and coach improvement in those skills and then be able to recognize people and and celebrate um, that as well which is something that i think best buy even taught at a really young age to really anybody who is working there i remember a lot of like younger leaders like they would put folks through literally like a university and be able to teach out those skill sets that ironically at a lot of other non-retail larger companies that I've been at have not been taught sometimes.
1: No, yeah. Um, now that I'm, I would say um, two, three years of managing this team now in a corporate tech space, I reflect at the moments when I was a younger manager at Best Buy, all the failures I've did in the past, right? Some of the the more like disappointing moments in myself that I've encountered when I was managing a store, I was like, Oh man, I definitely learned a lot from being a young manager at like early twenties. Right. Um, managing, I don't know, like 70 people, 80 people, <laughs> um, talking yeah. into like all store, hand, uh, you know, store meetings, you know, every Sunday night, um, uh, months a month. And, you know, I think in practice, uh, when I was actually managing at a younger age, I didn't really see it, right? How can this, I, how can I benefit this 10 years later, right? I didn't really see it because it was all in the moment. And I just did it just because like, oh, if the money's there, I was making more money than my peers. I'm going to take this job, right? But now I actually yeah. think about those times and say, man, um, how I deliver feedback now, I recall some of the moments when I was a young, an earlier manager, how I coach now, um, I basically like, learned a lot from how I used to coach when I was in, in management at Best Buy. And some of the like, mm-hmm. what not to do, what to do in these situations.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And my experience I felt like was, was very similar that, you know, it's funny in life along the way, just how transferable skills are that you learn. And it sounds like for you, and I know that it was something that was applicable for me, being able to translate that skill set. And being able to articulate that as you're going into a job search later on is just so, so important, especially when you're changing industries.
1: No, yeah, 100% completely agree with you. I think it's easy to kind of get lost in the moment. But what I've learned from that is like, take a step back. Like, how can I use this opportunity to better myself in two years, in five years, in 10 years, or how do I savor this moment right now that I'm being, I acknowledge that I'm frustrated, I acknowledge that I'm just dis- like disappointed. Or like, I acknowledge that it's a hard time right now, but how do I channel that so I can use it five years later, 10 years later, and how do I improve and keep on iterating on that?
0: Mm-hmm. What do you, What would you say the most important thing you've learned in your life is so far, if there, if you could boil it down to one thing, and you know, what was it like before you learned that? Um,
1: have more patience with people. <laughs> yeah, have more patience because um, just because you understand one thing a certain way doesn't mean necessarily another person will understand it the same way you are, right? So constantly mm-hmm. be patient and in making sure people, you think about people first, right? And their people perspective and their background and how they're interpreting your message, maybe differently than how you think they're interpreting it.
0: Mm-hmm. Was there a particular instance that something happened that kind of taught you this lesson?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, actually when I was at MuleSoft. Um, when uh-huh. so I joined the I joined the company after leaving Salesforce to be a senior technical recruiter, uh, and I got promoted to become a lead technical recruiter. And at that time, I was leading a small team, just like three people, really early in their careers. Um, this was probably like the first job sorry, their first job at MuleSoft out of college. So mm-hmm. uh, when they asked me for advice, I would just give them career advice and then not providing any content, context or substance to it and just like leaving mm-hmm. them thinking about it. So they didn't quite get like some of the recruiting process or recruiting um, uh, the ways of like managing a candidate effectively. Um, I didn't really provide a lot of examples because I thought they would just get it right away because in my head, oh, they're a recruiter. They should get it. Like, no, Mm -hmm. they haven't really had the fundamentals or the proper training beforehand. And I never really dug deeper into what they know, what they don't know, or how they got to where they are today. So um, that was actually some feedback that they gave me. It's like, hey, you're, you're, you're saying a lot of things too quickly. I don't understand. You know, you're just dropping this. You're just saying this, and you're just walking away. <laughs> uh, but I need help. Like, so at that moment, I realized, oh, like, I need to be more patient with the people I manage or, or the people I lead.
0: It sounds like that you had a good relationship there still because they trusted you and felt comfortable enough to be able to give you that feedback.
1: Yeah, the uh, the ex CEO of MuleSoft, Greg, he practiced a culture of radical candor. The intersection of like coming from good intentions and delivering like straight hard feedback. Like you don't want Mm -hmm. to just give direct feedback without any um, good intent. Like you want to make sure you prime the uh, other person. Hey, I'm going to give you some radical candor. This is coming from a good spot. You're doing this and this is how it's affecting like me or affecting the team. But it's, Mm -hmm. but we're all in it together. It's all about company first and like team second mentality there. So mm-hmm. the CEO always talked about it every month, right, at his all hands. Like, do your part to do to practice radical candor. It might be uncomfortable because it's hard to give people direct feedback from a good place because we're not really taught that way growing up, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So practice that, and he always encouraged it, and he encouraged people to tell, give him radical candor, like either in all hands or a one-on-one or in passing. So it was a culture mm-hmm. that practiced it throughout every office. Um, so they, even though we did have a good relationship, they also practiced that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And that actually was very really similar to the a similar lesson that I learned actually at Best Buy when uh, likely you and I were both working there around the same time. I worked with a district manager, his name is Bob Soko. And still to this day, a phenomenal leader. And I just took so much away from the time that I worked with him, but he, had another concept similar to radical candor that he called the 2%. The 2% is basically, you know, in 98% of what you say to other people are just things that you would feel comfortable saying, hey, Alan, that's a nice shirt. Hey, you know, how's your day going? How's your family doing? It's things that are like not confrontational, they're pleasantries and, you know, they're statements, they're fact-based. Then there's 2% that you might not say to somebody hey, you got food stuck in between your teeth, right? That's an example of something you might not say. And that's like a light example. Um, But the reason you might not say these things are because you're not sure how the other person will react. Mm -hmm. You're not sure how they're going to take it. You're not sure the consequences of saying those things. But in an environment where your team is comfortable with 2%, that's where open and honest feedback can happen and that open and honest feedback oftentimes helps everybody and it just helps the team uh collaborate Mm -hmm. better drive better know that everybody's aligned but yeah and i like what you said in terms of it starts from a place of understanding and acknowledging the good intentions in other people yeah what a great lesson to learn yeah When you started your career, as you were transitioning into kind of a more
1: corporate type role, what do you wish you would have known at the time when you made that jump? So corporate being my first time at Salesforce. um, Mm -hmm. So before Salesforce, I was in a agency recruiting. Um, firm called Apex Systems. And there for the, to, to the listener that don't quite understand agency recruiting is basically you're trying to place as many people as you can to a lot of you know, the clients, whether it be banks or tech companies or hospitals. Um, and they're usually a sharp short term or a long-term contract, right? Um, mm-hmm. And after that you get placed, you know, the the people in the agency makes a cut of the pay. And in order for you to make more money, you place more people, right? And your commission gets um, in, will increase that way. So I don't see that as a corporate, I saw that as like kind of like the minor leagues to the major leagues, uh, sorry for the sports mm-hmm. reference, but um, that's how I saw it. Is oh, kind of okay. like, minor leagues as agency, major leagues is like corporate recruiting. So my first mm-hmm. gig in corporate is like Salesforce back in 2014. What I have wanted to know is, um, I would say the relationship building is very important Relationship in terms of like your hiring managers um, that you're working with, uh, your direct managers, and also relationships outside of the core recruiting function. So things like the relocation team, the people operations team, things, you know, teams that and pe- teams and people that recruiting uh, tends to partner with um, when they need to get something done. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had known that because I didn't really think about building those strong relationships. When I first started, I was just chasing the number, always thinking of how do I make more placements to make a name for myself and get recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I finally realized like, Hey, building relationships are really important. I went back and did a lot more coffee chats. I really engaged with the people that I work outside of the recruiting function more closely. And that I think Mm -hmm. helped me to become where I am today. And I'm still learning, right? I'm still like trying to build relationships with like engineers and uh, product managers mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, basically key stakeholders. But I didn't really think about that as I entered my first job in, in, in Salesforce.
0: Yeah. So what does that look like as you're trying to build stronger relationships? You mentioned the coffee chats, like what else was going through your head in terms of this is what I'm going to do differently as I really focus on improving
1: Yeah, so always what I focus on was like how instead of me going to them with like my problems and my what I want from them, it's kind of like I would ask them towards the end of every chat, um, how can, what can I do today to improve your job, right? Because it's always a two-way thing. And I constantly remind myself when you're going into a meeting to get a problem that you want solved because it was your problem, always reciprocate and say, what am I doing wrong or what am I doing well that you want to continually like to see? Uh, and also, mm-hmm. how can we improve our process to make your job easier? Because mm-hmm. I started doing that and a lot of people, when they gave me feedback, I was like, oh, wow, no one's really asked me that before. Uh, especially yeah. the people operations team, right? People operations, a lot of people go with them with like um, uh, benefit questions or like um, at a new higher onboarding issue, right? But they never, a lot of people don't take the time to ask them, hey, what am I doing now that's affecting your job negatively or positively? And how can I change myself to better your team or better your process? Um, So through that, I always leave the meetings uh, asking those questions. And they really like that because first, it shows that you're not afraid to make mistakes. You're not afraid to admit that there is something wrong in the process. And second, it offers Mm -hmm. a, a vulnerable spot that the recipient can then, you know, give you feedback on.
0: Yeah. I mean, you went into that role, like most people, not even most people, I'd be willing to say, everybody starts a new job wanting to be successful mm-hmm. in that job, right? Nobody sets out into a job to go, I'm going to be mediocre to be really bad <laughs> at this job, right? Like nobody goes starts a new job that way. And so, you know, in wanting to just like knock it out of the park, really kick ass at that job, a lot of people say, "Okay, what are my results? What am I going to deliver, and how am I going to do that?" I'm going to get to work, and I'm going to go do that. And what's like kind of counterintuitive about this lesson that you learned, and I've gone through you know similar journeys. Um, there's a gentleman right now. His name is uh, Harley Finkelstein. He's the COO at Shopify. For anybody who doesn't know, Shopify is an e-commerce platform that powers the back end and front end actually of a lot of websites that allows you and, uh, to have businesses, small businesses, uh, to growing enter, uh, enterprise businesses, be able to sell things online. But he has um, a saying that he said on stage at a conference once, which was, you always want to deliver more value to others than you take. And he was saying that whether it was in terms of to your customers, meaning you always want to deliver them crazy amount of value in exchange for the money that they give you but it could also equally apply to like your internal customers and like your partners, your coworkers and other relationships where if you just are overly focused and helping other people and delivering value to other people, eventually reciprocity is gonna happen and they're gonna pay it forward. It's like the same concept of just like, you know, you gotta place deposits, you gotta help other people before you make a withdrawal. What a great story in terms of um why that was so important and how that's so important in helping you be successful. Now you've gone through a few job searches. You've seen the job search of at this point thousands of other people from, you know, the other side of the table, the inside from within inside the company um, doing the corporate recruiting. Many people think job searches and networking are really frustrating to the point where a lot of them want to give up. Why do you think they feel that way?
1: Uh, I'm glad you asked me this question. I was uh, hoping you would actually. Um, I think because in life, we don't, um, and early on, like for, with kids, like we don't teach how to fail, right? That's never really been practiced in school. I mean, people that I think um, that do sports competitively, they know how to fail because like there's always a winner and there's always a loser, right? In in any competitive right. sports game. Um but I think overall the, the general population, we're not really taught on how to fail and how to deal with rejection. Right. Mm-hmm. So when someone when you know people apply for jobs and they don't hear from the company or it goes in a black this magical black hole, or the recruiter gives them a general rejection template, then they react mm-hmm. emotionally but not logically. Right. Yeah. So I think also that ties into like we tend to I mean, emotion is it's really important, but how acknowledging how you're feeling, acknowledging what, what you're feeling at what time and why you're reacting this way, I think is really important than just uh, reacting without any logic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and I think a lot of it too, is like, people don't really talk about failure and rejection as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the failure and rejection is part of somebody's backstage. Like what happens that you know, isn't as public, not a lot of people know about it. If you're in a close circle of friends or in somebody's family, you might hear about it. But I mean, nobody is waking up posting an Instagram story and going, Hey, today, 10 companies turned me down and told me that my resume wasn't a good fit. Like people just don't do that. But the reality of it is you only need one. Mm -hmm. You only need one. Yes. Mm -hmm. In order to be successful. You know, you're working for a company that. Arguably is, you know, the fastest growing SaaS unicorn for anybody who doesn't know, a unicorn is a company valued at over $1 billion in Salesforce. Uh, by that measure is multiple, yeah. multiple, multiple, multiples of that. <laughs> Um, You know, th- tell me about some of the rejections that you've gotten along the way. How did you actually end up at Salesforce? And tell me a little bit about behind the scenes, what that looked like.
1: Yeah. Um, before I got into Salesforce, I was applying to, actually before the agency, this is like when mm-hmm. that one customer that I was telling you about at Best Buy that turned around and spat in my face and I said to my Gia, Like literally spat in yeah, your face? Yeah. Oh I, my gosh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> man. That's okay develop thick skin pun intended <laughs> <laughs> uh, i told my gm i'm gonna start looking for a new job and i didn't know what i wanted um i went into all these different on-site interviews from b2b sales to b2c 2 sales to insurance sales i thought i'd be really good in sales because you know sales at, at best buy all you do is just <laughs> sell so i thought i had a and you know my 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 family had a knack for being in the sales industry, like in jewelry, you're started selling, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I knew I needed, I wanted to go into sales. So I applied to like all these different roles, like car dealerships and all these different things, right? And I got rejected a ton. Mm-hmm. But like, I think my motivation there was like, I can't work at Best Buy <laughs> because of that incident. Mm-hmm. And I can never like deal with another frustrated customer. So I just use that as my motivation to continue to apply and, like, expand and, like, network. So mm-hmm. a buddy of mine said, hey, I think you actually be good in recruiting because I, I just mm-hmm. like started networking on LinkedIn. LinkedIn was very popular back then, too. You know, I just started networking, connecting to old friends from high school, from colleges, and say, hey, what are you up to? How did you get there? And what does this role mm-hmm. mean? I just started messaging them and, like, asking around. And my buddy was like, oh, um, I think you'd be a good good recruiter because there's an element of sales it's not hard sales you're doing a long-term mm-hmm. journey with a cost, uh, with a sorry with a candidate and pitching the role mm-hmm. pitching various roles to them and seeing if they're actually yeah. an ultimate fit so i started exploring that and you know the agency took a, a chance on me and i became a recruiter and at, when i came in i knew i had to be really good at what i did or mm-hmm. else i'd be like fired right Um, So I took Mm -hmm. night courses. I took night courses in the technical domain space because I was hiring technical software engineers. I didn't know what I was doing. I barely passed. Right. But Mm -hmm. I had more content and more uh, resources that I can tap into when I'm pitching these roles to candidates. Um, But then I always always also got rejected by them too. like they accepted an offer. They would say, Hey, Alan, I'm sorry. I have to reject this offer. I'm going with another company. And as recruiters, like after a while that becomes like your norm <laughs> because candidates will oftentimes reject you even though they've signed or even if they verbally mm-hmm. commit to you sometimes they would just say hey a situation comes in life or a better opportunity comes with another company or a better position that's more suitable for them therefore mm-hmm. i have to take this and like reject your offer it sucks yeah. but that's something that like i'm primed for nowadays
0: and just i think primed for it and expecting it you know sets you up mentally to be able to manage you know the stress and anxiety Mm -hmm. of a job search whether regardless of which side of the job search uh that you're on on the recruiter side or the uh the candidate side now at the agency and at salesforce you know you mentioned that you reached out to everybody in your network you used linkedin which was a growing tool at the time and quite frankly still is a great tool uh for a job search did you know any know anybody? Did you have second, third connections to the agency and Salesforce? Like, how did those how did that end up coming to be?
1: No, I just randomly like searched like random people, right? Uh, well, first I went to a first degree connection, which is like people from high school, right? And then mm-hmm. like I would look at their list of people and say, "Oh, that's an interesting job. Like, can you introduce me and recommend me to like this opening?" Right? And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them. A lot of sometimes, you know, due to, you know, maybe life obligations, I would never hear back from them, which is fine. You know, I never expected someone to like say, Oh, Hey, I haven't heard from you. Let's grab coffee. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I think it was a numbers game for me. It was like the more people I reach out to, I would increase my chances of getting at least one or two or three response. And when I do get the response, make it really meaningful and valuable for their time. So you're not wasting anyone's mm-hmm. time.
0: And I think what's, with- What's interesting about this approach, because it's most successful job seekers do take this approach of, you know, looking at their network, seeing who works where, seeing if, uh, whose friends, acquaintances, dog sitter, uncles, (laughs) um, where all of them work and then just navigating ways of being able to reach out to a hiring manager or a recruiter at that company. Um, Which, unfortunately, is not how everybody approaches job searches because many people will just go to a careers website and then just shotgun applications to Mm -hmm. like four or five different roles at that company. You know, what does that look like on the other side? You know, as on the recruiting side from within the company, you know, how do you manage the application flow and like what are the things that candidates should really understand about that process if they want to successfully get a job at that company?
1: Yeah, um, at Salesforce, I mean, we process 20,000 applications, I would say a month. I forgot, the number is probably a lot higher now, but that was, I think, when I heard about it like a few months ago. Um, And it's tough, right? We definitely, it's not automated. Some people think a machine automates it. And I think a lot of the applicant tracking system tools are trying to steer in that direction. my team actually looks at every like resume um, we spend uh, a minute on probably a minute or two on a resume before we reject them or move forward with them um, there is a notion of course like referrals because you have to mark down your source and who you know in the company referrals do get a, a more white club treatment right that's not a, a secret in the industry right if you know someone um, and they recommend you like the likelihood of you making it through the process, not getting hired, but like making through the process, I think is like increased by 40% overall. Yeah. Right. So I think who do you know and how you know them when you do apply is also an added benefit to your application. Yeah. And I know a lot of companies, actually Best
0: Buy included, that when you and I worked there, have an employee referral program. Mm-hmm. And so not only do referrals from employees at a minimum, somebody's looking at it and really putting the thought into, Hey, can this person be a fit in the role and your chances of at least getting a phone interview are exponentially increased, but there's also an incentive for that employee a because uh, working with friends and acquaintances is awesome Mm -hmm. because you, you know, it's really great to be surrounded by people that you want to spend the majority much of your life with. Um, but also there's a financial incentive a lot of the times for employees who refer really great people to join companies as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the great the great way to like get to know people, um, if you know the listener is like, oh, I don't have a lot of people I can like tap into, or I just recently moved to San Francisco or new city, I don't have any friends or how do I get started? I'm always usually sorry to kind of steer the conversation yeah, into this topic, good. but um <laughs> No, this is great. Tell me <laughs> but,
0: tell me a little bit more. So like if you move to a yeah. brand new city if you move to a brand new city like San Francisco, you don't know anybody in San Francisco other than like this one person that you maybe
1: went to high school <laughs> and it's been like eight
0: years and you haven't talked yeah. to them since, what would you do if you moved to a brand new place like
1: that? Yeah, I think candidates now are better suited in these situations to find a solution. Like I think before, when they, before the internet really took off, like it's harder. Right. Um, but now you have Facebook groups, you have LinkedIn groups, you have meetups, right. You yeah, even Eventbrite, right? They have, they promote um, these, these, uh, these event, like social gatherings. You even have like social sports league that individuals can enter, like very creative ways that you don't think um, you can find a connection to a job opportunity in, right? So those mm-hmm. are like the five things I just named, but like these events are a great way for you to interact with people. That's really outside, first, outside of your comfort zone. That's really good, right? And then second, mm-hmm. it's um, outside of your core network. Um, so it can expose yeah. you to maybe different verticals of ind- uh, different industries, of different job positions, you know, different um, positions that you don't even think that you'd be a good fit for. You know, someone might say, oh, I think we're hiring for XYZ. And they would be like, oh, uh-huh, I never thought about that. Maybe I should explore that mm-hmm. more. Tell me more, right? Yeah. Um, and also, like, if you follow companies on Twitter on their social handle, they promote events that are open to a broad audience at times, right? And you can just go to their monthly happy hour or monthly tech talks or monthly um, mm-hmm. social gatherings to learn more about that specific company. So I think with with yeah. social media, with like link with all these various groups and social like activities, um, one can it's easier for someone to like network and to meet someone and make a connection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And figure out the networking and the place and time that is most comfortable for Mm -hmm. you. You know, I think a lot of a misconception is if you're an introvert, you just are really uncomfortable with those cocktail party type environments. Like some of the digital networking Mm -hmm. is actually potentially just as strong, if not stronger, because you don't actually have to wait for that physical in-person event. It's kind of like always happening. So in the show notes for this episode, uh, Alan and I are gonna pull together like all of the places that we would go if we were looking to quickly build a network in a city or in a new industry globally. And we've mentioned, he's mentioned some of them already. You got LinkedIn, you have Facebook groups, you have Meetup, um, which is a name of a type of event, but also a name of a company that has an app that also does meetups. Um, So there's both of those, Eventbrite is a really great one. And then also, You know, of course, in tech, there are Slack groups. Uh, They're a little controversial right now because you can only be in so many Slack groups. Uh, But Slack is a collaboration tool that a lot of companies use. And uh, people have created Slack groups, which are kind of, you know, little communities. And they're similar to chat rooms uh, where they're live chat rooms with a lot of people. And that's another way of being able to reach out to folks as well what's a mistake that you've seen others make in a job search? You mentioned each resume is getting a brief look and I think a lot of folks who are writing a resume, like they they think it's like their craft, right? like it, they're spending their they're pouring their heart and soul into this document that somebody's gonna sit down with a highlighter and just carefully digest every single line. and unfortunately, that just doesn't happen. I know when I was screening resumes at Best Buy, like, you know that you have hundreds of resumes for every single open position, like what are the what are the absolute like do not do this or you should absolutely do this on a resume?
1: yeah, I mean, like what my team and I look for, and this is going to be like very like specific to tech since we hire you know software engineers sure. and mobile engineers, but I think it's also very transferable and applicable to the general audiences. Make sure the formatting is clear and concise, I think having variations of different formatting, whether it be font sizes, color, um, spacing, right? Um, That plays into effect whether a recruiter um, spends either 10 more seconds or not. And those 10 seconds, Mm -hmm. extra seconds can be very valuable, right? Um, So make sure the formatting is is really clear and concise and that it's consistent (laughs) because if it's not, um, the recruiter will most likely pass because it's hard. It's really hard on the eyes, hard to read and hard to understand. So therefore, they won't spend yeah, time but, on it.
0: But it also shows your attention to detail once you're going to get into the job. You know, if you're going into a role, you know, those that is the difference, especially if you're coding, that's the difference between a bug, a full outage and code that's delivered and makes it through quality <laughs> uh, testing processes and is
1: stable in production. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think the second thing is um, a lot of people spend too much time writing the responsibilities under each each employer, each job, um, and they focus too much on that. Um, having clear bullet points, one, two sentence max per responsibility, I think is enough rather than a whole paragraph, right? I would say just clear, concise, like one or two sentence about your primary functions, right? I think a lot of people overcomplicate their resume with secondary responsibilities that may necess- may actually hurt you in the application process of the resume review. So save those secondary responsibilities as back pocket content. So when you do go into an interview and you need to leverage something, some material that you need to recall, from, you can uh, basically, you know, use that for um, in an interview process, an onsite interview or a phone interview to recall those information, Just spend four or five bullet points of your primary responsibility, things that you do on a day-to-day basis that are really important to the business outcome of your job right now. And then focus on that rather than have typing a long-winded paragraph and being mm. too thorough.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's something for those that are part of our Vitan program, our Vitan Insiders program, we teach out all the time that you're likely going to type out all those bullet points kind of as you're drafting out your resume. But as you go to actually submit your resume to a company for a particular role, you always want to narrow down those bullet points. And that might be different role to role Mm -hmm. that you apply for because some of those bullet points might be more applicable to another job. Um, but not applicable to a different one at a different company that you're applying for. But the best that you can do is take the job description of the role that you really want and just match up the bullet points. If the job description is saying that you know a certain skill set or certain experience is relevant to that role, and that's one of your 10 bullet points, you shouldn't put all 10 bullet points and make it really hard for the recruiter to find that. You should really just narrow down. To the exact bullet point because the recruiter oftentimes is going to be looking at that resume looking for that experience and actually i just this
1: is brought up um i just remember when i applied to salesforce i actually fixed my resume so it's tailored towards hiring and recruiting like at best buy um i think i listed like achievers awards sales like attaching accessories like That doesn't, it's not relevant to the recruiter role at Salesforce when I applied. So I quickly like Mm -hmm. changed things up on my resume to make it really applicable to the role I was applying for, which was more hiring and focusing on recruiting and like leading a team and training people uh, when I applied to the, the role at Salesforce as a recruiter.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's what—that's absolutely what somebody should do. You know, we—you talked a little bit about primary responsibilities, secondary responsibilities, and you know, in the environment and in many retail environments, everybody's primary <laughs> responsibility is go yeah. Um, But you have all of these other secondary responsibilities too. And if you just shift your bullet points, maybe have three bullet points out of the five be focused on hiring, onboarding, coaching, yep. and you know things like payroll that then shows that company, if you want to make a full jump into that area for that, what used to be your secondary responsibility and make that your primary responsibility, that's how you show that you have that experience already. So I completely agree with that. And what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to get into a company like Salesforce or tech in general?
1: Um, It's a constantly changing environment. So stay on top of the new, stay on top of what are the new companies that are about to IPO? Um, Just read Mm -hmm. more about um, how companies are using various technologies and various um, tools and platforms to better change the world in some format. I mean, it's constantly evolving. I mean, tech in the 90s and the 2000s is very different than how tech it is now, right? Cloud computing wasn't the thing. Now it's everything, Mm -hmm. right? Before, we used to install CDs, right? And licenses per CDs on physical desktop. Now, Mm -hmm. you try to buy a desktop, it might be hard to buy one and find a CD to install software on there. So it's constantly changing. I think understanding the evolution behind these changes um, is very helpful to understanding like how companies, especially tech companies, are so important. Yeah. What are the resources that you think are really great to be able
0: to keep up with that type of really industry or company news?
1: Yeah, my favorite, like, TechCrunch, Gizmodo. Um, Sometimes I'm on Reddit. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm very cautious with what I read on Reddit just because, like, you know, it's basically everyone's opinions. So there Mm -hmm. might not be an ounce of truth, but it does keep me entertained. (laughs) Um, And, yeah. Yeah. Entertained, for (laughs) sure. And then,
0: you know, but TechCrunch... TechCrunch, Gizmodo, mm-hmm. and, Gadget, and Gadget, really great, reputable sources um, to be able to keep up with that industry news as mm-hmm. well.
1: And sometimes even um, companies that I actively follow, they have their own blogs, right? Like Salesforce have their mm-hmm. own blog. You mentioned Slack. Slack has their own blog. So company blogs are also a good way of um, understanding factual evidence, right, of something that's mm-hmm. going on with the company.
0: Yeah. And... You know, one last question, our listeners, and you know, a lot of folks, this has been a really great episode. Where can they connect with you online if you want to keep this conversation going, if they have questions for you?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best way to
0: connect with me. So, for LinkedIn, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes for this episode as well. Um, Thanks so much, everybody, for listening in. Alan, thanks for joining us as a guest. This has been a really great episode in terms of understanding. You know what that process is like to being able to work at a company like Salesforce or equip a Salesforce company. Um, we will wrap up this episode and Alan's also included a lot of other resources uh, such as something that you can listen to called The Passionate Few. Um, we're going to put a link to that audio episode, which has been one of his favorite episodes and resources that he's found along the way that has been really motivating in his career as well. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Vincent. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If this podcast was helpful to you, the best thing that you can do to support is please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people just like you move towards the life that they desire. Visit our podcast on Apple Podcasts, then scroll to the bottom tap the rate with five stars and just leave a sentence or two about what you loved most about this episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can write at hello at viton.com. I'm Vincent Fanvan Van and you've been listening to How I Got Here.